I'm Dr. Tanja Coleman, president of Reimagine Organization Development, Inc., and you're listening to Cut to the Chase. Stepping out beyond boundaries takes courage and the ability to dream. We are excited to share our new audio podcast called Cut to the Chase. The structure of this podcast embodies open dialogue with friends, family, and professional colleagues talking about things that impact our ability to thrive. We hope that you will join our unscripted, unbridled podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cut to the Chase, episode 117, entitled Just Be Quiet. Yep, I think this is going to be one of those type of discussions where by the time the discussion's over with, I believe that no one's going to be quiet. So today, I've reached out to a good friend of mine that I met on LinkedIn, and she is really the go-to person for DNI. But before I get to that, before I introduce her, because of the incredible person that she is, I went out and I found some quotes that I think is going to really resonate with what we're going to be talking about today. So the first quote goes, don't waste words on people who don't deserve your silence. Sometimes the most powerful things you can say is nothing at all. And so today, our featured guest is an executive human resource and organizational development professional in both nonprofit and Fortune 100 companies. Prior to her entrepreneur venture, she worked as a senior level human resource and organizational development professional in nonprofit and Fortune 500 companies, including Microsoft, Starbucks, Sears, YMCA, Kinder Care Education, and many, many more. She currently serves as the president of Reimagine Organization Development, Inc., a boutique consultancy firm that provides various organizational solutions focused in on cultural transformation, diversity, equity and, excuse me, equality and inclusion, along with leadership and development. She's earned her PhD, her Master's of Science, and her Bachelor's of Science degree, which makes her extremely important to talk about this topic. In 2019, she was the author of Who Are We Journal, a diversity inclusion journal, which was created on the foster and understanding and appreciation of our differences and beliefs to encourage people to engage and understand and respect individuals that are opposite of you. In 2018, her title chapter, Role Modeling as an Alternative to Mentor for Career Development Outcomes in Organizations, will include in 2018 the volume of leadership and role modeling, understanding workplace dynamics published by Paula Graves McMahon. In addition to her career, she's also received 15 professional and academic awards, two Best Paper Awards from the Academy of Management, and presented over 15 times at various academy conferences dated from 2012 to 2019. And without further ado, 
I would like to introduce to our listeners, Dr. Coleman. How are you doing? Do you have any opening remarks for us today? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. And I know that you have a lot of information that we want to go over today and questions you'd like to ask. So without further ado, I will let you get to your research. (laughs) All right. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. And it's a blessing to, uh, to have you on our show. It's been, uh, it's really been long overdue. I mean, we've seen the quality and the body of your work that you've got going on out there, particularly as it relates to LinkedIn. Uh, we know recently you were just on, you know, the Fox news talking about how, uh, corporate America diversity initiatives continue to fail. And I think one of the most important things is is the emphasis is that they continue to fail with black women. And as we know, the subject of this podcast is about just be quiet. But on the premises of talking about diversity and uh, equality and inclusions and and all of these other things that are related to uh, what we're seeing out there in the world today, my first question to you is, why do you believe, or should I say, let me rephrase that. Why do you think that society wants us as the black community to be quiet? Well, I think when you're typically not quiet, you are demanding something and you're looking to be heard. And sometimes individuals do not want you to embrace your presence you know, being present and and embrace your greatness and demand more for your greatness and demand um, equity and equality and inclusion and belonging and all the things that come very naturally to um, the power structure that's in place and mm-hmm. less naturally to those marginalized. So when you're not quiet, it's you're making a statement, you're voicing your opinion, you're demanding more, you're expecting more, and you're saying, I am more. And Mm -hmm. sometimes people just don't want to hear those words. They don't want to deal with it because it's not something they align with or believe in. They feel like you should be marginalized. They feel like you should be invisible, Um, but we're not. And we have a multi-trillion dollar buying power, so we don't have to ever be quiet. Right. Right. Completely, completely uh, agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, recently in your um, uh, interview that you had with uh, Fox News, you talked a little bit about the fact of, you know, kind of how on record today there's less than 40 women leading Fortune 500 firms. And that record basically has increased from what it was previously which was 33 leading minority women in Fortune 500 firms. Based on us talking about being quiet, you know, do they find in society, at least from your professional opinion, that is it an is it kind of an intimidation factor that 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 is that's being casted out, or is it something that we're doing as the black community that needs to kind of adjust or change? What are the things that are really inhibiting? us from reaching C-level suite positions and being able to be in charge of some of these Fortune 500 companies. What are your thoughts on that? 
And and right now, there's only one African-American woman that is sure. uh, leading a Fortune 500 company, and, and it's Walgreens. And, and thank goodness for me, I get all of my prescriptions from Walgreens, and I shop there often. So I feel like mm-hmm. this is a pride, um, because I do believe your dollars should go with the organizations that value or respect you and believe mm-hmm. You can ascend to greatness at any level within their organization, and they've demonstrated that. And I just want other organizations to look at that and continue. But Mm -hmm. to answer more specifically your question around what is it that's prohibiting us, I think it's, um, I would say if you could look at a balance scale and Mm -hmm. you have one side of scale A and one side of scale B, On the side A scale, you have the situation where you haven't had a lot of women in color in these type of positions. Mm -hmm. And one could say with a Fortune 500 company, people might be less likely. And when I say people, I mean shareholders, board of directors, stakeholders might be less likely or less inclined to put their bets on a new commodity that they haven't seen replicated in other organizations as being successful. I mean, mm-hmm. Ursula Banks was our last female CEO, and that was several years ago when she decided to retire and, and move on. We that, that role just sat absent until Mary Wilson was the interim CEO of Bed Bath & Beyond about a year mm-hmm. and a half ago, but that was an interim position. Um, so we haven't really had a, a track record of African-American women in those level positions. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you kind of stay on that scale, A, there aren't many champions of African-American women necessarily um, as part of that board of directors, as part of the C-suite, as part of the stakeholder um, regime. So you you are really kind of out there on your own winging it unless you get some sponsorship and some support from some of those individuals that are in those positions. And then on the scale B side, you have um, women who might traditionally be in positions that don't generally ascend to CEO. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I was looking at functional areas is Ursula Banks did a really good in-depth interview when people ask her this question as well. And from her insight, she really felt like women were in support roles, not in money-generating revenue roles. And Mm -hmm. this may may be the reason that women were not ascending to the CEO level um, within organizations because they did not have fiduciary responsibility in their current roles, um, which is a consideration. However, one of the things I help women construct is what is their value? What is their ROI, even in a support role? Because we know a support role wouldn't exist if it wasn't important to an organization. Mm -hmm. How are Mm -hmm. you helping them and how do you then put dollars and quantify either your mitigation of risk, your um, creativity around marketing, and how did that equal dollars in the door? How did your marketing campaigns increase revenue? So there's ways you can absolutely put dollars and metrics behind any and every activity that you do. I often find that people do not, and that's an issue. Um, So I think even in support roles, we can have women ascending to CEO positions. And actually, I was reading some information that Gallup 
um, wrote about two years ago saying mm-hmm. that HR professionals are probably the most ripe and best equipped to lead organizations mm-hmm. because the people aspect of any organization is the most important. And right. so without the people, you have no company. It, it just doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. when you have people that are either disengaged or people that are highly creative and innovative, it makes the difference between profit and bankruptcy. So you have to be able to manage and understand people and HR folks do that. And women are largely in HR positions. One of the things though that the research in my opinion took for granted is that women were in the top HR positions, the CHR positions in these Fortune 500 organizations and Fortune 100 organizations. And when you really look at the numbers and you look at the names and faces of who's in those positions, they're widely still white men, even in the top HR positions that were Mm -hmm. usually thought of as support roles or roles that women went into. When you get to that critical level at the C-suite in these larger organizations, a lion's share of those positions are still occupied by males and primarily white males. Mm-hmm. So even there, when you talk about support positions, women aren't necessarily leading those either at the C-suite level in large organizations. Right, right. Well, you know, <clears throat> with regards to your, your comment um, there, regarding the fact that people are not leaving these positions. You know, one of the things that come to mind is even if they were to leave, you know, by, by whatever, you know, circumstance, retirement, or just decide to move on, do well, we no, find. I, mm-hmm. No, I said we, they're not leading. They're not leading. In leading, life. leading, leading, mm-hmm. correct. Leading, not leading. But do we find that if if someone was to to move on from that position and the opportunity was to present itself, are we finding through some of some of your research and through some of your studies that we're finding that we are provided the the opportunity or the fortitude to be able to step into those roles? Because statistically, what I'm seeing is some of those things really don't weigh into our favor because we are placed in roles of DNI or we're placed in roles that really don't have a the framework or the foundation that allows for us to transition into that corporate suite position and then into maybe a CFO or CEO type role. What are you seeing out there when when those type of opportunities are being presented? Right. I I think the role of the DEI professional is so important, Mm -hmm. but what I don't necessarily see is the career mapping and to where that person will go after that Mm -hmm. role is over. And so the average tenure of a a chief diversity officer is about two to three years. It's a very short tenure. The average tenure of a CEO is about seven years. Um, So you can see the disparity right there. Yes. So- Mm -hmm. Um, clearly there, there are some opportunities. One that I really talk about a lot is leadership development. So you have individuals at line level management roles and at director level roles that are exposed to what they call high potential programs or specific leadership development programs, or they're receiving sponsorship for executive MBA programs. 
Mm-hmm. Those type of programs and development options aren't readily available or widely available to Black individuals, Black professionals, or people of color at large. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might have a high potential group of 30 or 40, and maybe one or two, I will say not Black, but one or two people of color <laughs> in sure. that group, mm-hmm. right? And so you can see what a disparity that is as you continue to move up your career, not having access to executive coaching, not having access to um, psychometrics and interpersonal awareness and communication skills, um, access to really being on a board of directors and how do you operate? What does that mean? Presenting to executives versus presenting to other peers. There is a vast difference in all of those things that you need to know that oftentimes we are, or people of color are not getting those same opportunities and same experiences. And so when you are creating that slate of candidates for those C-suite level positions, you have then a group of individuals who just don't have all of those skills or have been given access to them. And so that's already a deficit. Then if you have some individuals that may have had some level of access to, to those skills and have mastered them, how much sponsorship are you going to have for filling that role? And how much um, mentorship have you had? How much sponsorship do you have of people talking about you in the room and giving you opportunities all along your career path to ensure that you're ready for those next roles? So when your name is mentioned, people are familiar and they know of your work and they know of you. Now, when you think of the average tenure of a a chief diversity officer um, leaving in two to three years, they're going someplace else. You're constantly starting over all the time. And that's an issue too, because you you don't have an opportunity to really build your reputation. So Mm -hmm. my challenge for the individuals in these um, chief diversity officer roles is what what is your off-ramp? Because most of these individuals have come from functional areas, right? They either came from HR, Mm -hmm. some come from, IT, some might come from finance, and they're filling in these roles and giving their level of expertise and leadership to help build them at that level. But then what's next? And that needs to be a discussion as well. Another thing that I'm really seeing out there that I people reach out to me all the time is just being put into a diversity leadership role of some sort with mm-hmm without asking, without the desire to do so, and without the budget and resources to really ensure that it's a success. And that's another whole, (laughs) I I don't know how to coin it, but it's almost like an organizational Black tax now, like a cultural Black tax, because just because you're a person of color, you get slapped with managing the diversity program with no money, no budget, no resources, no experience, and no desire to do it on, oh, and by the way, on top of your other job. So if you're a product manager, financial analyst, whatever that is, you're doing this on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. How can you be successful in that scenario? You you really can't. I mean, it it uh, it it it's. I guess you know. For me, you know, I find that is. Uh, you know, I hate to use this word. I won't say hate, but you know, it's probably not the best word to use. 
it's really putting you back into kind of uh, an oppressive type scenario. You're 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 being put into a, a situation that provides so much burden. And if you're not qualified and you don't have the training and you don't have the budget, like you just stated, it, it's almost impossible to be successful, you know, in something like that. So it's it represents kind of modern day slavery almost by by putting you into a situation where you can't win um, or at least find a means of being fulfilled towards accomplishing some type of marginalized success. and. And that's just that's just tough. But I mean, you know, we see it every single day. We see that people are getting promoted. We see that after Black Lives Matter and after all the things that happened, um, you know, last year that, you know, this just became the norm. And, you know, I find from the standpoint of being an outsider looking in as, as well as being a part of corporate America at one point in my prior career, that the accountability has just kind of gone away. You know, diversity, the efforts of that, you know, we continue to miss the mark. And if we continue to miss the mark in inclusion and equality and diversity of, you know, for 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 minorities, for for black communities, for whomever, why can't we get to the root cause of being accountable? And and I think you chimed on that earlier on is the fact that we don't hold the purse strings. And when you don't hold the purse strings or the decision to make those purse strings is regarding the spend or the expense, then you find yourself still on the outside of the playing field or the sandbox, as they call it, still trying to get in. And that right there to me is is where it seems to be where the rubber meets the road and it makes it so much of a very frictional conversation in a lot of cases because the invitation is never there. It seems like the doors always close. But as the community stands today and we try and figure out how to hold ourselves accountable, I think when we are invited to the table and we put out our requests and those things don't happen, we have to be timely enough to put forth the persistence to go back and say, well, wait a minute, we're 30 days from now and you said this was going to be done and it's not done. And, you know, sometimes I, I believe, and, and, and this is just a belief that I have and some of the things that I've seen in the past, is that we miss being able to hold that accountability standard as, as, as tight as we possibly can because they do it to us. Why can't we do it to them? And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying it in a positive way. What are your thoughts about that? You know, well, it's a, there's a couple things. I think every um, group champions for their continued success and visibility mm-hmm. and respect and all of that. Right. And, you know, in 2019, the, the Black buying power was over $1.4 trillion. So mm-hmm. buying power. So some of it is really how are we going to ensure that we hold our dollars and spend our dollars freely and happily with organizations that are showing that they have a respect, that are showing that they're making forward movements, that are showing that they are committed to their diversity strategy plans and are accountable. So we also have 
power. We are empowered to make sure, just like with anything else, you know, back in the day when they were showing movies in theaters, for instance, that weren't, um, that were too adult-like for children, there were a group mm-hmm. of others, right? Mm-hmm. Got together and said, oh no, you will not show my children this. We right. need ratings on this and we will hold off going to the movies until you all get this together. And sure. guess what? Now we have ratings on all movies. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So absolutely but you-, you can absolutely make sure your dollars are, are going to organizations that are not just vanity profiling, but sure. actually making a difference in the community, in diversity spend and diversity supplier, in representation on the boards and representation within the C-suite. And this isn't a nice to do. I think people sometimes feel like you're asking for something to be given to you or it's a nice to do. It's not. It has been proven time and time again by Stanford, by Harvard, by Sherm, by all these great organizations Mm -hmm. that diversity makes a difference in the bottom line. So in any other aspect of business, when leaders are told that, hey, your pockets will get fuller if you do A, B, and C, usually A, B, C, A, B, and C are done. But in this case, it's such reticence to actually move in the way that you should move so that your own pockets get filled. Right. <laughs> you know, it shows double digit profitability when women are CEOs of these Fortune 500 companies. And let me tell you, most of the time when women are given those positions or person of color, they're in dire straits. Right. They're at the, <laughs> they're not in a good place. So of course. not only are you doing the heavy lifting just to get them back into the black, you also are doing the heavy lifting to get them into a profitable situation. Mm-hmm. So it's been proven that it makes sense to have diversity. It increases innovation and creativity. It also decreases your uh, your um, ability to make these huge cultural mistakes that we hear about all the time. And you scratch your head and go, well, geez, <laughs> who was at the table when these decisions were being made? Why didn't someone speak up and say, you know, the mocking sweater with the large red lip turtleneck was not something that was cool to do? Like, yeah. where, <laughs> where was the leadership in that before those type of decisions were made? But we often find that they're made and then people and then people go to the easy, easy resolve of, well, you do need people of color at the table or a person of color. No, you need people of color at the table. Absolutely. But they shouldn't have the show world on their shoulders to tell other people how to be culturally sensitive. If you're in a leadership role, you should know this. You should understand history. You should have done your research. You should Mm -hmm. know what the implications of certain mockery is and certain designs and how it might infuriate people or not align or, or bring up bad historical memories. As a leader, this is your role to know this. It isn't the one black person at the table's role. And usually it's only one. That's true. Say two. Isn't the two people of color at the table to educate everyone else? And then what if they don't listen? Right? right. Because you're already outnumbered and outfavored. So that's correct. You have to so so people also have to take some responsibility, but I will say 
every ethnic community has this huge buying power and they can hold that. They can hold that and say, I'm going to spend my dollars where people respect me. And some, you know, organizations, some individuals have done that with uh, organizations versus others. Like, hey, they pay their folks a comparable rate wage, just way over minimum wage. I will go and spend my money there versus going over here where people are working and still on welfare. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's, uh, that's a, a, definitely a, a, a great, you know, uh, summation of, we have so much buying power and I'm going to throw a butt into the mix here. It's, you know, the butt is, is we have a tremendous amount of buying power, but in the same aspect, I think that the community doesn't realize the significance of that buying power because we still are attracted to that vanity, that shiny object, that new pair of shoes or that new BMW or whatever the case may be. And these may be organizations that are not really uh, providing the wherewithal to improve their overall uh, cultural or or well being for for how they promote minorities or blacks within their own com- uh, organization, and so what are your thoughts surrounding how do we get more communication out if we're going to try and create things like this where we say hey look we really do have a large majority of the buying power like you said what is it one trillion dollars or however many billions of dollars it is in in black wealth throughout the United States or, or throughout the globe, what are the ways that you see that we could actually really have some serious impact? And we're just talking hypothetical here. Right. Well, you know, hypothetically, you know, there were a lot of organizations that came out after the George Floyd incident, for instance, mm-hmm. but we mm-hmm. could just start there and they made pledges, right. They made allegiances mm-hmm. to their, their, organizations and they said what they were going to do. And what happens in our society is we just are very, we have very short attention spans. Right. <laughs> so we see, you know, one droplet go into the water, and make a ripple. But we don't really go back and see what else is going on in the water. Mm-hmm. We just kind of leave it alone. And mm-hmm. before you know it, you know, nothing has been done. All these promises right. and testimonies, they go away. And the organization, when you pull them up, they still have the same, you know, metrics and diversity makeup mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that you saw before they made, you know, these these whole page ads and things. So yep. once again, some of that onus is on us as consumers and not mm-hmm. just African-Americans as consumers to everyone that our consumers. Most of this country has some type of ethnic diversity in their family on some level Mm -hmm. or within their friendships or within their neighborhoods. So it's upon all of us to make sure that these, these things are being met. And once again, it's not a nicety. It ends in diversity makes, ensures that products are better when they go to market Right. Um, they're more advanced, they're more technologically savvy, they're they're cooler. It's everything goodness about diversity. And that's mm-hmm. why it's 
so frustrating that we have to continue to have these conversations, even after laws um, like the Civil Rights Law Act of 1964 was enacted. We're still having these conversations because it has been proven that diversity equals dollars. (laughs) So we have to hold those organizations accountable by looking at their board of directors, looking at their C-suite, really seeing, are you supporting MBEs and WBEs? Are you supporting minority-owned business, women-owned businesses from a supplier diversity perspective? Because that's another lion's share of um, funds as well and representation. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that have products. How much are these organizations embracing these products? What market share are these suppliers getting with these larger organizations? And mm-hmm. we have we have an onus to do this and the metrics are there. They have the information. But once I think you start saying this is what we expect, I don't think you'll have a lot of pushback. The problem is there's always a big splash and a lot of attention. And yep. companies coalesce to that in words and sometimes mm-hmm. in dollars, right? But yep. you, know, you have a, a billion dollar organization giving two or three million. That <laughs> it seems like a lot, but it's really not a lot. Very so, true. Um, how do we go back and say, okay, have you delivered on A, B, C, and D, or we need you to deliver on these things? This is what we are requesting as consumers. And I would say for any community, you don't necessarily have to give up your shiny objects. You just have to make sure that the organizations that you're buying those shiny objects from are living up to the expectations to ensure that you and your children and your children's children and your husbands and everyone else in your family can have a a role that where they're respected and where they're paid, um, there's compensation, parity, and equity within an organization. They have equal opportunity for development and advancement within these organizations. And I also hear a lot about, well, you know, just become an entrepreneur, just become an entrepreneur. And that's Mm -hmm. wonderful. It's wonderful. It's motivating. However, we are still spending money with these organizations. And so with that in mind, then you have to start demanding some of what you want. And not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone's cut out to do it. Mm-hmm. It's not of interest to a lot of people. So why can't they have opportunities and careers in these organizations where you're spending your dollars, where you're buying their product, where you're buying their service? Right, right. You know, it, oh. It's a no-brainer. It, it absolutely, you're absolutely right. It, it, is, it is truly uh, a no-brainer. Well, Dr. Coleman, we certainly uh, we're almost out of time and uh, certainly just have a couple of fun facts that we want to end this on a positive note on. And of course, you you left this uh, door wide open for me to ask you this question. Of course, it won't be pertaining to the subject that we've just talked about, and it may come at you come at you like, a, you know, um, a boomerang. But here we go. So which instrument did you play in the marching band? Actually, I played the flute and piccolo. Nice. I had to memorize all of my music because there's not a lyre for the flute or piccolo. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, we saw that on your bio and I was like, hmm, interesting. Very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) You find out so many great things when you have uh, people on your podcast and uh, 
Absolutely. And like I I tell people, there's levels to everything, right? So I didn't just walk on the field and and get in marching band. At my school, you couldn't become a marching band member until you were a junior. So my freshman year, I was what they called the flag girl. So I actually held the American flag up during the football games. Mm -hmm. And the second year, I was on the rifle squad. And then my, my junior year, I was in the marching band and senior year. Right, right. Very cool. Very cool. Well, certainly we, uh, we thank you for that. And, you know, as we've talked about Just Be Quiet, and we've talked about a lot of facts and statistics and various things, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me, and, and, I, and I've heard you talk about this a lot, and so I went off and did some of my own research just to kind of test the waters myself, but it basically says that Black women have been the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs amongst women who have grown more than 600% between 1997 and 2017. Now, those are some old facts, but certainly 600% is astounding when Mm -hmm. it comes to, you know, what the women, or excuse me, what minority women are doing today in the world. And and I think I heard you say on one of your recent interviews is that, uh, you know, now even in the educational, you know, system, uh, black women are considered more more educated now um, than 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 some of the older cultural um, aspects that are going on out there. So there's all these dynamics that are going on, which kind of clearly indicates that the tide is turning, and all of this inequality and equality and you know racism and all these things. You know, you would think that it would come to a pinnacle and at some point the balloon would pop, but some of us still believe that we're years and years away from seeing that. And so as we're wrapping up, are there any final remarks that you would like to leave with our listeners? Sure. As far as um, African-American women business owners or Black women business owners, yes, there there is an exorbitant amount of new businesses that are happening, and many of them are doing quite well. Um, however, on average, the average Black female-owned entrepreneurial venture is only bringing in $50,000 a year on average and Mm -hmm. receive less than 1% in in venture capital. So there is still a lot of work to do. And that's why I think it's so important that in these diversity plans that we have some type of supplier diversity initiatives in there for MBEs, Mm -hmm. WBEs, for organizations. Now, the, my clients and who I work with, they're making huge strides in what they're doing. Um, and they also are realistic in understanding that you can't boil the ocean. What are we sure. really going to focus on that's going to get us the biggest results towards the diversity trajectory that we want to have? Putting mm-hmm. that in place and just being steadfast about ensuring that you're getting there, but also along the way, ensuring that you have a culture that is inclusive, that people feel like they belong. It doesn't make sense to recruit a bunch of people into a toxic, non-welcoming, non-inclusive culture so they can only leave within six months to a year and a half. Mm -hmm. That doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense either. So make sure you're getting things in in a way where you have compensation equity, where you have people that feel included, where you have clear career tracks for individuals, where diversity is looked upon as a a career enhancement and it's going to help you internally with promotion and with executive presence and with getting in front of senior leaders. 
all of those things need to happen as well. And one last phenomenon that I want to touch on just very briefly around entrepreneurs in the DEI space. So Mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur in the DEI space, I get a lot of calls from individuals who don't have these budgets, who don't know anything about diversity. And I give them a lot of my time, but also Mm -hmm. run a business too. So it's almost like a cultural black tax on both sides on the person that's being asked to do this and then the person that they're reaching out to for free to give them advice and guidance. Because at the end of the day, once again, as a Black woman entrepreneur, I'm at a disadvantage. I want to help the person because I see the train wreck that it's going to become and Mm -hmm. I want to help them avoid that. But then on the flip side, I am running a business as well and I deserve to be compensated. And I find a lot of my counterparts that are in this space that are not Black women are not being asked these things and they don't have to do this. And when they come to the table, they come with a proposal and they're getting paid. So it's really important that we think holistically about this and we also you know, demand that if you want me to take this over, I need to know what your vision is, what your strategy is and what your budget, because in no company ever do they not invest in something that they think is important and they think that is going to move the organization forward. So that's just baloney when you, you hear there's no budget and there's no money. That means they just don't see diversity as a priority. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Thank you very much, Dr. Coleman, for for all of your insight and sharing a lot of your research uh, with us today. Uh, it is it's still a tremendous amount of work that is left to be done out there. And uh, all we can do is hope and pray that things continue to progress the way they have been over the past year or several months uh, yeah. to ensure that we, we move this thing forward. Absolutely. And so... What was that? I said, absolutely. And honestly, I would not be doing this if I didn't feel like it had a positive impact. I'm seeing movement and I'm seeing positive trajectory. And I just want to put that out there that there there's good things happening in this space for sure. Yes. And I believe that as well. I believe that as well. I mean, it's uh, it's certainly uh, the as they say, the helm of the ship is 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 turning may not be turning as fast as both you and I like for it to turn, but it is turning. And uh, again, we'd like to say thank you for, for being on the show, being on the program. Um, certainly, you know, you never know, maybe we get you back in uh, six months and we do a, another accountability check to see how far diversity has come thus far since the last time we talked. That might be an interesting episode. Yes. <laughs> But anyway, to my listeners, uh, to our fellowship, uh, to everyone, as I've always said at the end of every episode, you know, let's maintain our compassion and empathy towards one another. Let's try and unite and come together to make this world a much better place. Dr. Coleman, thank you very much for being on the program. On the next episode, we're not going to call you Dr. Coleman. We're going to have a fun time, okay? So I'm just giving you a heads up. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely fine. All right. So everyone, thank you very much. This is your host, Gregory Proctor. This has been episode 117 entitled Just Be Quiet. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Cut to the Chase. Stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Cut to the Chase. You'll also find even more great content on our website at www 
www.k2tcpodcast.com. Thank you and catch you on the next episode.